0: Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, a conversation with Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky, and the subject is majority rule.
1: The real question is the filibuster and cloture. Where do they come from? Are they in the Constitution? Can the system be changed? Would we be better off if we got rid of filibuster and cloture? And what are some of the common misconceptions that people have about that hoary tradition in American life?
0: We talked about whether or not this was, in fact, a unique time in American history. And as Lindsay says, as a historian, that is terrifying.
1: Dr. Chervinsky urges us to change the Constitution with respect to the makeup of the Senate, that not every state deserves two United States senators. Please join us
0: for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do?, our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson, and good to see you, Mr. Jefferson.
1: Good day to you, my dear citizen.
0: Mr. Jefferson, it's said that you wrote the rules of the United States Senate. Is that a fair and accurate statement?
1: No. The Constitution wrote the rules of the United States Senate, that each state shall have two senators that they shall be the jury in the event of an impeachment, that they alone handle foreign policy along with the commander-in-chief, the president of the United States, that treaties require a two-thirds majority in the United States Senate, and so on. All those are provisions of the Constitution that was written in 1787 while I was in Europe serving as the ambassador to France. But while I was vice president between 1797 and early 1801, I was the vice president to the second president, John Adams. And as you know, the vice president presides over the United States Senate. I was so bored with this, all the speechifying and all the the maneuvers and the egos and the the shenanigans of the United States Senate, because there really was almost nothing for me to do as its presiding officer, that I decided to write a, a manual of procedure in the hopes that this would bring more efficiency to the work. Of the Senate and I consulted my old mentor George With, gathered some materials, and during my leisure moments, I wrote out a, a manual of Senate parliamentary procedure, which I understand, in some fashion with amendments, continues to be used in your own time.
0: Yes, it's said that in uh, December of 1800 you visited uh, the residence of publisher Samuel Smith with your notes in hand to have them published.
1: Yes. uh, Samuel Smith was the owner and and editor of the National Intelligencer, which was the the newspaper of choice in Washington, D.C. His wife, Margaret Bayard Smith, was was a friend of mine, a very dear friend of mine. And when I finished making out my my planned procedure for the us senate i took those notes over to him and asked him to print them up this was not an official act of the united states government this was simply a private exercise that i undertook but the senate then began to use that manual and and i believe it has amended it a number of times in its history but it continues to be based on what i wrote uh, back then
0: it said that you did this somewhat because of the trouble that mr adams had he had a great knowledge of procedural things, but he was criticized quite a bit for how he ruled on parliamentary things.
1: If you're the vice president, you know, your only function is to is to outlast the president if he should die for some reason or other. And meanwhile, the founding fathers kind of scrambled around to think of something that the vice president could do and not really being able to think of anything else, they gave him the presiding position in the Senate. And he, as you know, breaks ties in the event of a of a tie on a, on a on a piece of legislation. And so Adams always took himself very seriously in everything that he did. So he was the vice president under Washington and he really thought that he would be a significant force, a presence in the Senate. And most of the senators found him to be overbearing and pompous and and and, and, and an impediment to the the business of the Senate. And so when I became the vice president in 1797, I decided to take a much more uh, cautious and indirect role in the life of the Senate.
0: You organized this manual into 53 topical sections. One that uh, survives to this day and and is actually used in elementary schools is about behavior that, quote, no one is to disturb another person who is speaking by hissing, coughing, spitting, speaking, or whispering to another.
1: I'm afraid that rule has been more honored in the breach than in the observance. But at least in my time, senators attended the Senate. In your time, uh, senators spend almost no time on the floor of the United States Senate, and you often see uh, a person holding forth from the well, and then the the camera uh, turns to the the Senate chamber, which is largely empty.
0: Well, you should know that years later, sir, uh, the House of Representatives adopted your Senate manual as a partial guide to its
1: own proceedings. Given what you all say about the paralysis of the United States Congress in your time, perhaps the time is ripe for someone to write new rules for the U.S. Senate and the House of Representatives.
0: Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson.
1: You are most welcome, sir.
0: Good day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. Today we are so pleased to welcome back Dr. Lindsay M. Chervinsky, an expert in presidential history and the United States government and its institutions. She's a scholar in residence at the Institute for Thomas Paine Studies and a senior fellow at the International Center for Jefferson Studies. Maybe most important to us is she is the author of the award-winning book, The Cabinet, George Washington and the Creation of an American Institution, which was published in April 2020 and now is available in paperback. Uh, Welcome back, Lindsay. It's always great to have you.
2: Thanks so much for having me back. I'm excited to be here.
0: We wanted today to talk to you about your recent column published in Governing on October 13th, and I'm I'm very anxious to hear you and Clay discuss this. The title of the column is, How Did the Senate End Up With Supermajority Gridlock?, Do you want to start us in on that subject, Lindsay?
2: Sure. Well, my goal with the article was to sort of help explain how we got to this place where nothing seems to get through Congress and anything that is passed requires 60 votes in the Senate, especially because those that are familiar with Article 1 of the Constitution know that that 60-vote limit is not articulated anywhere in the language. And so there's, there have been some excellent books that have come out about the filibuster and the subject, but I wanted to kind of condense it into one manageable piece, one short history that was easy to digest and help people understand kind of how we got to this spot.
0: Clay, that's something you've commented on a lot, the supermajority, and that it, it wasn't really intended by the founders.
1: Right. So just let me start by saying, hello, Lindsay, we're so glad to have you back. I'm very excited about this topic. There are three constitutions, really. There is the capital C Constitution that was written in 1787 and ratified in 1788 and has been amended 27 times in 230 years. And that tells us that the House consists of people who serve for two years and the Senate for six years and the president serves for four years. And there's an emoluments clause and there's a pardon clause and there's an impeachment clause and so on that's the capital c or the hard c constitution the second constitution is sort of the small c constitution of norms the president goes before congress to deliver his state of the union message the president has executive privilege etc there are many things that we assume are part of our constitutional structure that aren't articulated in the formal constitution but have have become habits and they become habits so deeply embedded in American life that they essentially have full constitutional status. For example, if you suggest you're going to change the number of justices of the Supreme Court from nine to 12 or to three, there's a widespread blowback for that because people think nine is somehow a sacred number. It's not. The Constitution itself says nothing about the number of justices that shall be on the Supreme Court. So that's the second, the small c constitution of these habits that have have really percolated up in the course of our history. The third constitution is the most difficult, but it's what Alexis de Tocqueville called habits of the heart. It's the way we actually constitute ourselves. And so, Lindsay, if you go out to to get coffee at Starbucks, or if you go to to renew your driver's license or or your vehicle tags, this is how you constitute yourself. And most of what your life involves is not about government. It's about daily life our commercial lives, our social lives, our intellectual lives, our our private lives. And this is much more important in the long run than government. And it's how a culture constitutes itself. So if you just keep those three levels in mind, the Senate was articulated in the Constitution as being the senior body of sort of wise statesmen, two from every state but the founding fathers were clear that they wanted to operate by majority rule. So there would be majority rule in the house and there would be majority rule in the Senate, except for certain enumerated things like treaties, our habit, our small C constitutional habit of of filibuster and, and cloture. These are not articulated in the constitution. They're just American habits and they can be manipulated. They can be changed, but we now have a situation in which the Senate is already tilted towards privileging small states. If you add to that cloture that it, you need to have sixty votes to pass a fundamental piece of legislation, that puts almost unbearable amounts of power in the minority. And if you take the if it takes sixty votes, that means that you you need only forty votes or forty one votes to, to stop any piece of legislation. Take the twentieth smallest population states in the country, North Dakota, Wyoming, Vermont, Alaska, they have power beyond the conception of even the state's rightists at the constitutional convention. And and that's the problem that majority rule was meant to be the system. It is no longer the system and it has created widespread paralysis. Is that, do you agree with that, Lindsay?
2: I do. I agree with that completely. And I think there are a couple of elements of what you said that I just want to highlight or footstomp, depending on how snarky I'm feeling at the moment. Um, the first is that, you know, we often we have discussed the phrase the founders intended and how problematic that can be. But this is one of those rare examples when actually the majority of the people who were at the Constitutional Convention agreed that it wasn't okay to have a very small number overruling a very large majority. So this is one area where actually they they were in pretty common agreement with that the majority should be able to rule. And there would be protections for minority rights, of course, but the majority was supposed to be able to make a decision. The second part that I think is really important to emphasize is that this is a custom and norm that actually evolved much later than people think. So some customs and norms, like executive privilege, go all the way back to George Washington. Others, like this one, didn't actually emerge until there's some disagreement among scholars when it really came to be. But I think a good rule of thumb is sort of mid-19th century. And a lot of it was having to do with slavery and the rights of slave states and limiting the language that was used to discuss this issue. But it's not like it's something that's been with us from the beginning. And it came back in force, like really actually became articulated with Woodrow Wilson because he was frustrated that uh, people were not passing things during World War I. And then came back again during the civil rights movement in an effort to limit conversation about civil rights legislation. So this is a relatively new phenomenon. And so when, institutionalists or senators talk about how it's so important to the history of the institution that actually demonstrates a lack of understanding of the history of the institution and how it was never intended to be that way from the beginning and wasn't that way from the beginning.
1: Let me reinforce what you just said, um, because I feel that it's such an important point that the filibuster that is one person holding up the business of the Senate is not part of the Constitution, and it didn't come about early on, it really is deeply connected with race. It's not exclusively connected with race, but it is fundamentally in its origins connected with race. It's been the attempt by the Senate or some members of the Senate to prevent legislation that might have challenged their ownership of slaves and the perpetuation of slavery into the American West. And so you see it in the 1850s As one way of preventing uh, racial justice in the United States, you see it again during the Jim Crow era, but particularly you see it in the 1960s in the civil rights movement, when President Kennedy and, and President Johnson attempted to get civil rights legislation passed by Congress And the filibuster was an extremely important tool used by Southern resistors to prevent that civil rights legislation from passing. And so when we think about it, we think, oh, this is a question of civics. It may be a question of civics, Lindsay, but it is also fundamentally a question of racial justice in the United States, don't you think?
2: I do, and that begs the question then, especially today, as we often discuss whether the filibuster belongs in the Senate and whether that minority should be able to impede progress, why people want to preserve a tool that has been used for such particular aims and continues to be used for such particular aims. So, for example... The, recent, the most recent usage, we're recording this in late October, the most recent usage was to block a Voting Rights Act that would protect the right of citizens to vote. Why do people want to protect the right of, to to not protect the right of citizens to vote? It blows my mind how you can claim to be wanting to protect your democracy and yet wanting to make it harder for citizens to vote. Those seem to me to be completely at odds with one another
1: and just one quick historical note in previous generations the filibuster required senator x to stand up in the well and hold forth for a day for a week for a month and often we hear stories of they would read from the yellow pages they would uh, they would read huckleberry finn they would they would read and talk about their lives they had to hold forth because if they yielded their time the vote might come about and most recently we had an example of this with ted cruz senator from texas reading Green Eggs and Ham in a filibuster in the United States Senate. I mean, literally reading Dr. Seuss's classic Green Eggs and Ham to delay a vote that he felt would not be in the interests of his constituents or himself. I don't know when it was, Lindsay, but it was in the last 20 years that the Senate gave up on that and just said, oh, just invoke invoke filibuster. If you stand up and invoke filibuster, you won't have to spend three and a half days without a shower reading from your favorite children's books. I don't know why we did that. I suppose to spare people from the endlessness of that sort of thing, but at least that Lindsay forced people to actually do it. And after four or five days, that Senator might think, you know what? I really want a shower and a good meal and might actually stop. But today, if I can just stand up and say, "I'm, I'm going to filibuster this, there's no consequence.
2: My understanding is they don't even have to stand up and say it. They can literally send an email. So they don't even have to be in the room you know, I would be, if, if people really want to keep the filibuster, one amendment that I think would make sense would be the what you're saying. To have to stand up, to have to say, to actually invoke filibuster, to fight for what you believe. And at the very least, demonstrate to your constituents where you stand on an issue. Now people can hide behind an email. They can send an email to their party's majority leader or minority leader and say, you know, I oppose this message. And it's never public. You never have to stand up and express your your intent on a vote. You never have to defend your position. And I think it's cowardly.
1: It's cowardly. Yeah. And it's too easy.
2: Yeah.
0: Perhaps for perspective, we should all go back and watch Jimmy Stewart and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. However, at this point, we need to take a short break. We'll return to this conversation with Clay Jenkinson and Lindsay Chervinsky in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
1: Back to the special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour with our friend Lindsay Chervinsky, who has been on this program, I suppose, now nine or ten times. And we hope that will be a pattern that continues for a very long time here at the Jefferson Hour. So, Lindsay, as I understand it, the Constitution created two houses of Congress, and the House, elected every second year, was meant to be more responsive to the will of the people. Because the re-election every second year would enforce sort of a discipline to listen to one's constituents. And if somebody veered, they would be retired. But the Senate was set at six years so that there would be some time for everyone's concerns, frustrations, anger to cool off. And this would allow one version of the will of the people to express itself through the volatile house but a more sober, more cautious, more restrained, more reflective view of the will of the people to find expression through the Senate. In other words, we already had a special restraining mechanism built into the constitution. We didn't have two identical houses that did the same thing under the same terms of election. The founding fathers wanted the Senate to be a a slowing down entity, wise, you know, using the word Senate from from Rome, these, these kind of senior Uh, constitutional advisors. And so we already had that system built in. To go one step farther then and to prevent majority rule from existing in the Senate is is to double its capacity to prevent things from getting done. And it wasn't intended by the founding fathers. And nobody can look at it today from either party without seeing it as a paralysis mechanism. And of course, both parties are a little bit afraid to get rid of it. Because if they're in the minority, they want to be able to paralyze the Senate. That's the only reason the Democrats have, well, that's not the only reason, but it's the main reason why the Democrats now haven't ended the filibuster, which they could do by simple majority rule, because they're a little bit afraid that if the Republicans come back to power, they will want that tool back that they've given away for short-term gain.
2: Yes. And let me add, actually, there are two other additional built-in elements to slow down the passions of the mob, if you will. First is that initially and of course this one kind of no longer exists because the senators were initially supposed to be elected from the state legislatures so they were an, they were one element removed from the will of the people. That no longer exists although I would suggest that there is a certain amount of seniority that is sort of required in order to run for a senate but maybe I'm giving too much credit to to that particular institution. The second part is the presidential veto. The president can veto a bill that is harmful to minority rights, and it does require a two-thirds majority to overrule that. So there is a process inherently built into the Constitution to allow for that supermajority if it is a particularly harmful bill. And I, I feel like we've completely forgotten that as a country. Allow me to respond, though, to your question about sort of our current day. I have zero doubt, absolutely zero doubt, that if the Republicans were to take the Senate in 2022, they would do away with the filibuster in a moment if it served their interests. Mitch McConnell has already proven that he's willing to change the rules of the filibuster when it suits him. And uh, one of the key arguments in favor of the filibuster is that it facilitates and it fosters bipartisanship, which I think is nonsense because we've seen when there are bills that come up or when there are appointments that come up that do not require the filibuster, it actually does facilitate bipartisanship. Look at the infrastructure bill. We actually got over 60 votes. Look at some of the appointments that have been made. For the president's positions and the president's cabinet, you get over 50 votes when there isn't that really intense pressure of the
1: filibuster there. I couldn't agree more. And let me just add one more element. There's another anti-democratic part of the structure of the Senate. Today, California with 40 million people has two United States senators, and Wyoming with about 500,000 people has two United States senators. That's inherently anti-democratic. And so let's review. The Senate has a six-year term. To slow things down, the Senate has two individuals from each state, which allows the smaller states to have extraordinary power. The Senate requires the two thirds vote, according to the Constitution, only for a very tiny number of things, overriding a veto and uh, treaties. Majority rule was meant to obtain in all other instances, but the Senate has set up for itself the idea of cloture and filibuster, which give that minority even greater oomph than they would have had under a a more purely democratic model of American government. And the result of all of this is that things just can't get done. And I'm with you. When the filibuster is not invoked, when there is actual debate, I mean, live human beings debating on the floor of the United States Senate, things get done. And this has an ameliorative effect. We don't want the Republicans to just sweep their program into power without significant debate. And we don't want the Democrats to be able to enforce their program without significant debate. And so from, in my opinion, from almost every possible perspective, the filibuster is a mistake. And the more so when you realize that its historic origins are largely about keeping Black people down in the American democratic system.
2: So I have a question. I actually have two questions for you, Clay. The first is... I think one of the best, I mean, this is never going to happen because it would require a constitutional amendment and Lord knows this constitutional amendment would never get passed. But I think that one of the best ways to reform our system would be to make the Senate population-based like the House. I think it would resolve a lot of these challenges. What do you think about that?
1: I couldn't agree with you more. I've actually done the math. I'm sure you have too. And under my model, California and Texas and Florida would get five senators each and then states like Massachusetts and Illinois and others would get four, and then other states would get three. Uh, Little states like North Dakota and Wyoming would get the statutory one. So there would be one for the tiniest states, two for states like Nebraska with a million or a million and a half people, three for states that have five or six million people, and then there would be significant weight for states like California and Texas and and Florida, which have such massive populations. And you could still keep it at 100 if you really wanted to, or you could expand it to 120 or whatever. But as you say, chances that this happened approach zero, if not actually equals zero. But I think we would actually be a much better governed nation and that we would get things done if we had this system. So let me just give you a quick example. So President Biden is president. He would like to do a whole range of things, He's probably not going to get much of that done because of the peculiarities, the, the paralysis that we built into the system. Let's just say he had gotten it done, that he got his Green New Deal, that we addressed climate change, that we extended health care for everybody, that we solved some fundamental problems in our energy delivery system. If he got a lot done using almost a parliamentary system, he might be rewarded by the American people. They might say, thank God almighty. Something finally is coming out of Washington, which actually seems to be addressing these problems. And so by clinging to this fossil of the past, we're preventing either party from enacting a program of legislation that might ameliorate the conditions at the border, might ameliorate the conditions of global climate change.
2: I would actually argue there's an even more nefarious outcome, which is that when generation after generation of politicians can't really get anything done, it leads people to believe that the system is broken and that democracy can't work. And it makes them start to flirt with the idea of other types of systems. I think there was a poll that came out that suggested for the first time, more than 50% thought that democracy was no longer a viable option. And so that leads people to want to support politicians whose sole goal is to tear down the system, to undermine the democracy because they think something more radical is required in order to make any sort of change. And that has, you know, potential really potentially negative and dangerous outcomes for our nation.
1: If you read the Trump presidency, even in the most benign way, I think you would say that he was uh, put into office by millions of people who feel that the system is broken and can't be fixed, who want to tear down many of the norms, and who believe that some form, some flirtation with authoritarianism is the only way out from the problems that we're in. And so that doesn't necessarily suggest that they wanted to sack the Capitol on the 6th of January, et cetera. But do you agree that the Trump phenomenon is a barometric measure of the of the cynicism and the sense of that there's no way out that many honest people feel?
2: Yes, 100%. So let me ask a follow-up then, which is that there are people in the Senate um, who I think are well-intentioned and want to keep the filibuster for some of the reasons we've articulated I don't believe that they are stupid. I don't believe that they are willfully ignorant. Given the information we've talked about and the outcomes that we've talked about, how can someone like Joe Manchin still think that the filibuster is helpful? I mean, of course, I'm asking you to get inside someone else's brain, which is always a a dangerous proposition. But I just I really have trouble understanding how people can still make this argument in good faith. And I don't think that he's making it in bad faith. I think he genuinely believes it. And I'm just really struggling to understand why.
1: I think there are two answers to that. Let me see if either one of them makes sense to you. Number one, I think people, as you said earlier, mistakenly believe that the filibuster has deeper legitimacy in our national history than in fact it has. And some of them, and Joe Manchin may be one of them, believe that it is actually a constitutional provision to violate, which would somehow be a betrayal of the of the foundation text of American life. I guess I think that Joe Manchin is wiser than that. The second reason is that I think everyone gets it, that this is a tool you might well want. And so let's just say that the Republicans get the majority in both the Senate and the House in 2022, a thing that is very likely. And then they decide to put a program of deep voter suppression in or build a wall on both the Canadian and the Mexican border and to expel Muslims or whatever it is. I think someone like Joe Manchin and many other people who are good American patriots believe you may want that tool. You may need that tool to prevent a simple majority from damaging the country in some uh, unprecedented way. And don't you think everyone kind of has that uneasy feeling that It's a tool that we hate, but we may need.
2: I I think you're right. I mean, I guess I feel like that's maybe giving, as I said, maybe giving Mitch McConnell too much credit. I don't think he's met a political norm he hasn't been willing to break yet. Um, And so I just don't really know why they think that that one would be the one exception. But maybe they know him better than I do. So we can give them that credit.
1: You're very kind. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, at least while we're recording.
0: I was really excited for this conversation because I I so enjoyed this piece that you wrote for Governing.com, Lindsay. And, you know, we're talking about the filibuster, and it's such a contemporary issue. And I do want to come back also to both of your assessments about reforming the Senate because I disagree with you heartily. But in your column, you talked about President Lyndon, uh, Lyndon Johnson and Medicare, and how they had a vote count of 55 votes and knew that it would pass because only a majority vote was required. I think that's kind of an interesting example. You know, we're talking about the filibuster and Clay's talking about its need, how some senators might think we need that as a roadblock. or You know, we survived a long time without it, and it is a new phenomenon, you know, within the past 30, 40 years that it's been used, I think, since 1980 quite a bit. So comment on that. I mean, we wouldn't have Medicare if there was a filibuster at that time. It wouldn't, it wouldn't have passed.
2: Yeah, it's a great example. I'm glad you flagged it because it shows that not all legislation was subject to the filibuster just, you know, 60 years ago. And so when we think about again, this goes to sort of the weight and longevity of this precedent, and it's really not what people think that it is. I think as, you know, one sort of, I guess, pushback, of course, we have been in uh, moments of intense partisanship before uh, the 1790s, the 1850s, the 1890s. Um, You could maybe add some others in the 1960s there. So I certainly don't want to say that this moment is more partisan than any that we've had, because I don't think that would be correct. The difference is, and I'm not the first to say this, Heather Cox Richardson is a great historian and, and someone who's articulated this very well. This is the first time we have had a one of the major political parties want to destroy the system. In the 1850s in the 18, in 1860 especially with the uh, presidential election, Southerners acknowledged the outcome of the election and then wanted to leave because the system wasn't working for them. They weren't trying to destroy the electoral system. They just wanted to leave. Now, I'm not saying that they, that was better because obviously secession and civil war is not something you want to emulate. But I do think this moment in some ways is unprecedented. And as a historian, that's generally terrifying. Uh, but it is something definitely to think about when we consider our our politics in the particular moment we're in.
1: So, David, first of all, great Freudian slip. You said, you said President Lyndon Johnson, but you almost said Lindsay. And I think that's the first person who's predicted you might be the first female president of the United States, Lindsay. So how about that?
2: No, thanks. I I don't want that pressure. No pressure. No, thank you. No, no.
0: I I don't. I don't think it was Freudian. I think it was
1: bad reading. (laughs) I, I enjoyed it anyway. So we're in this, we're in this paralysis and I think every American with very few exceptions wants us to find a path out of this paralysis. Don't you agree? Yes, people want something to get done, and people know that there are issues that we need to face. And everyone knows that we have an issue on our borders. Um, not everyone agrees about global climate change, but but a, a stronger and stronger majority of people now understand that we're in really a difficult position here, and we must respond almost with a Manhattan st- um, Project style level of of, of of national intensity. People want. Rational um, restrictions on certain types of weaponry in the United States. People understand that our healthcare system is just hopelessly broken um, and and extremely um, uneven in its benefits. One could go on and on about the the problems that people see. I mean, and, and then there's a low level anxiety about the robotic and AI economy that's coming and how many people are going to be displaced by it. You know, beginning, say, with the truckers, but really eventually involving all of us. And so we get it. I mean, Americans are smart people that they have concerns about the things that have to get addressed by a great nation. And the fact is, they just aren't getting addressed. So Jefferson, we've almost never talked about today, if he were here, would say, well, look, your system is broken tear it up and create a better one, because there's no point in continuing down this path. If if there's, if nothing is going to come out of it, that's useful, a more Madison might say, well, maybe we can, you know, maybe there's a way to return to these norms and to maybe a a new era of good feelings can come about and so on. I think Jefferson would say, look, folks, it's broken and a broken system probably can't be fixed do you think can you see a path forward can you see a way out can you see 5 years from now or 12 years from now an america that does address these issues that does get things done that 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 finds a, a spirit of compromise and and moves towards the second half of the 21st century in something like efficiency and good sense
2: um so we, we talked about the Senate reform idea. The other major reform that I think would really solve a lot of our challenges would be to reform the Supreme Court and make the positions 18 year, 10 years with then uh, you would have a, um, What's the a pension so that it would still be a lifetime seat. So it wouldn't require a constitutional amendment. Each president every two years would get to appoint a, a justice such that it would the Supreme Court has always been political to suggest otherwise shows a lack of understanding about history. But it would take the games gamesmanship out of the appointing process and there would be a clear understanding about how this is going to work. I think those two things would go a really long way. Now, are they going to happen? I don't know. I would like to think that if Biden can get a couple of key things passed such that people can start to see, well, government maybe still can do some things and then build upon that success for other reform, bring back some of the people who have been disillusioned by this process into the fold, and expel those that are actively seeking to destroy it as opposed to arguing in good faith, then maybe. But that's pretty wishful thinking, and I, I depending on the day I either despair or I have great optimism— So I would like to think that that's possible, but I think that that hinges on a lot of people in Congress, frankly, a lot of Democrats being willing to make compromises and putting the national good over maybe their agenda. And I hope that that happens, but I'm not sure.
0: Very good. We need to take a short break, but we will return to this conversation with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and our special guest this week. Dr. Lindsay Chervinsky. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
1: special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Our guest is President Lindsey Chervinsky, uh, first announced here on the Jefferson (laughs) Hour by David Swenson, the semi-permanent guest host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. You said something a little bit provocative there, David, a moment ago. You you, um, disdained, you condemned Lindsey's and my plan to change the United States Senate into a more pluralistic entity.
0: I beg your pardon, it was just a disagreement, but Seeing as you asked, let me just say I we can agree there is no action without a reaction. And while I applaud the two of you in finding a solution to gridlock, I would challenge you both to play that movie to the end. If we are governed in the Senate by large regions, what happens to the rest of the country? The smaller states are going to have very little say. While I appreciate the fact that it is a pathway to breaking gridlock, the system that we have has worked pretty well. I believe it can work well again.
1: First of all, I get it. I mean, the, look, that the compromise that occurred in the summer of 1787, in which every state gets two senators, was a very important compromise, without which there probably could not have been a United States constitution. And it really has some benefits. I doubt that the two senators from Wyoming have really been able to offset California by just being two senators from Wyoming. In other words, I think we 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 mythologize that power, especially now that earmarks are no longer part of the system. I think we mythologize that power unnecessarily.
0: Tell that to Joe Manchin.
1: And look what Joe Manchin is doing. This This is a perfect point let's see if Lindsay agrees with me here. I think the country is more progressive than we like to admit. Of course, there's a very strong conservative element in the country, but the country has always been shown anxiety with social security and Medicare and Medicaid and the Americans with Disabilities Act and Wilderness and the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act. And for that matter, seatbelts and helmets on motorcycles. When these things are proposed, there's always a kind of don't tread on me backlash or a state's rights argument that this is tyranny and then after a few years everyone gets it that these are really important parts of being a stable human being in a modern world and so i think if if the if the progressives if moderate progressives in 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 the democratic party could fulfill their platform over a, a, a two four or six year period that the country would actually breathe an enormous sigh of relief and we would have new, fundamental protections of the stability of average Americans that are unprecedented now. And because of which rural America, because we're paralyzed, rural America is in deep, deep, deep trouble. I don't see that, that, that the red states have contributed much to solving the fundamental problems of the United States. For example, if you think you can close the border with Central and South America, it can't be done. And it certainly can't be done with a wall. We have one bad idea after the next being put forward to kind of hold the line against modernity. But guess what? Modernity is here. We're going to be a a white minority nation by 2070 and maybe sooner. You cannot prevent these things from happening. You can stall, which is where we are now. But if you actually said, well, let's just let a compromise system of moderate progressive legislation pass, I believe the country would be infinitely better off than it is today and the ones that are holding this back are Manchin and North Dakota senators and Wyoming senators and Arkansas senators and Mississippi senators, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, these individuals, about 20 of them, have power beyond anything that even Hamilton could have recognized as a legitimate power in a democratic culture. Tell me I'm I'm wrong or right, President Stravinsky.
2: No, I completely agree. So the last thing that David said was the system has been working pretty well. What I want to say is the system has been working pretty well for white men in minority areas. Granted. It is designed as such in 1787 for slave owning white Southerners. And for example, let's pull up this mansion example that that you mentioned. It's not my fault. It's not my fault. (laughs) (laughs) There are um. There was a great Twitter thread online, uh, and I don't I don't have the exact memorized numbers, but I think I have them mostly right. Uh, There are fifty thousand coal miners, uh, I think, in the United States left. Um, or maybe it's in West Virginia, but I think it's in the United States. There are 50,000 coal miners. There are more than double that that work in museums. There are more than like quadruple that that work in as nurses or teachers. And yet those are not the constituencies that we are generally focusing on, even though teachers and nurses and our civic education is so essential to our future. And everyone knows that coal has to be phased out. This is not a good long-term industry. And if Manchin would let the president or let other people in Congress, they want to provide better pain better train jobs for those people because coal working is terrible for you. It's terrible for your body. It's terrible for for the industry. It is terrible for the environment. And so, I mean, this is just a great example of that small little number is holding back the progress that we're talking about because of the way the Senate is formed. I would also suggest sort of to take a different approach to this subject. So much of our system, we forget that we have a federal system. So much of our day-to-day life—actually, this goes back to Clay's first three constitutions—our day-to-day life, so much more of it is influenced by state policy than it is by federal policy. Your local education is a state issue or a regional issue— Your uh, speed, you know, the speeding limits in your state or in your local county are state and local issue, your water policy, your fire department, your teachers, these are all things that are, are still controlled locally and still would be controlled locally, even if the Senate was adjusted. So I don't actually think it would have that big of an impact on our life because we are in a federal system.
0: In your column, you write, Article 1, Section 7 of the Constitution is unchanged since its adoption in 1788, and the House of Representatives still passes legislation by a simple majority. The Senate is the main obstacle to legislative productivity. The principle of majority rule outlined in the Constitution, therefore, remains subverted until the cloture rules are reformed or abandoned. So if, if the Clay and you are talking about reforming the Senate to correct that, that would give me pause and I would think.
1: Well, first of all, what a great paragraph. I, I agree 100% and extremely well articulated. And that is enough. I mean, if look, if you said to me, you can't get it all but what can you what where should we start i would say end the filibuster and cloture let's take our chances with majority rule it sounds so radical let's take our chances in america with majority rule i'm ready to do it it's a little too late for this administration we all know that a, a new president gets most done during the first 18 months now we're a year in uh, almost uh, i think that if they abandon cloture tomorrow in the filibuster it wouldn't give the American people enough time to see the benefits of the legislation that's would be coming. And I doubt that this would really change the 2022 elections or the 2024 elections.
2: The only thing, if you allow me to drop, the only thing that I think it would have a real impact on the elections is if we could pass the Voting Rights Act, such that the elections could be more fair, could to prevent the, the voting rights attempts at suppression in certain states.
1: All right. The second thing I would say, I agree with you. The second thing I would say, Lindsay and David, is that, of course, we want cloture to be eliminated in a bipartisan way. And whenever one party does anything like Obamacare and the other party completely resists, this creates a, a legitimacy problem. You, you, you want fundamental bipartisanship in key legislation. And so if the filibuster ended by Kamala Harris being the 51st vote, the Republicans would run on this and they would it would be largely successful because they would say, how can one party change the system of a great constitutional republic like the United States? And so... You want this to be an era of good feelings, Lindsay. The era of good feelings was James
2: Monroe.
1: <laughs> Jefferson was regarded as kind of a radical who turned out to be a moderate. Madison, lackluster but a brilliant, brilliant man. And along comes the least of the th- of the trio, James Monroe, and presides over eight years of American happiness. Now, keep in mind, add slavery to this mix. Happiness for oh. whom?
2: And I would also say that even that concept is—I think he—he he had the good luck to inherit a system in which the Federalist Party had collapsed. It wasn't a good era of good feelings through his own uh, manifestation. But also, we forget his second—his second term was mostly stalled because his entire cabinet was competing against each other to be the next president. It's not really a very good cabinet of good feelings.
1: Indeed. You know the, all these. I, I've been rethinking everything. I'm writing this piece for Governing uh, now about how how deeply woven race is in American history. And so, like ten years ago, I would have said with, with joy, "Oh, this is Monroe in the era of good feelings." Now, when that sentence starts to come out of my mouth, I hear a little asterisk catch, and I think, "Good feeling for whom? Good feeling for whom?" And this is important. We, I think that this is a really important breakthrough for all of us that we now. I don't think we can talk about Thomas Jefferson ever again without an asterisk. I don't think we can talk about George Washington without an asterisk. I'm just working on Gabriel's rebellion, you know, the slave revolt that occurred in Virginia in 1800. You know how many people were hanged? 26. And yet the people who did Shays' rebellion in 1786 were pardoned, except for two. The people who did the Whiskey Rebellion in 1794 were pardoned. And yet when Gabriel, a literate black artisan who was a slave, was an enslaved man, attempted to do a slave revolt in 1800, which fizzled out, by the way, no white person was ever killed, no white property was damaged. The reprisal in Virginia was that 26 enslaved people were hanged. You can't look at something like this and not have that asterisk explode in your head and realize we do have a system which is fundamentally different for African-Americans and Hispanics and Latinas and LGBTQ people, et cetera, than it is for the white male majority or the the former white male uh, legislative majority in this country. And so this this is the best thing that's happened in my lifetime, that this asterisk has gotten into the center of our discourse, but it really causes some problems, doesn't it, Lindsay? Because the big whopping generalizations we used to be able to trot out now have to bring pause.
2: Well, it certainly makes it more complex and it makes it harder to, you know, paint a broad brush with this sort of rhetoric that sometimes is easier and happier to comprehend. I think it only causes a problem if I use the the sort of the royal you here, not you specifically, because I think you do a great job of this. But if you as sort of the royal us if we want to tell the story of thomas jefferson and omit those other things if somehow that makes it impossible for us to still appreciate the good things and the contributions and i know this is something we've talked about before but i just i reject that concept that it has to be good or all bad because That's not how I am as a human. I'm flawed. I make mistakes. Now, granted, I don't own people, so I think this is an improvement. But nonetheless, I am not a good or bad person, and to suggest otherwise would be deeply unfair as a self-assessment. And so I reject the notion that we have to say that, you know, Thomas Jefferson was a great writer, period. We can also say he was a great writer, and yet some of his writing... Had some omissions or had some contradictions that we still struggle with today, and that is actually, I think, a much more
1: interesting story. That's the asterisk. In other words, I don't want to pull Jefferson's statue down. I understand why some do, and it doesn't make me doesn't give me a sense of great outrage. It gives me a sense of sadness. To use the cliche, I think it would be madness to um, to throw out the baby with the bathwater here. I think, but the asterisk is my answer to this that. And I, I think about the greatness of the University of Virginia, its architecture, its lawn, the concept, Jefferson's uh, agency and all of this. And then you have to think, well, the bricks were baked by enslaved people. The land was leveled by enslaved people. The buildings were built by enslaved people. the All the, the, the worker staff until the 1980s was people of color. Uh, I think that's an asterisk worth having. In other words, that doesn't say that the University of Virginia is a terrible place, and it doesn't say that Jefferson was a horrible hypocrite for creating it. It says, this is a great achievement by Thomas Jefferson, which could not have been accomplished without the enslaved labor of his time. Absolutely. And if we do that, everybody wins, it seems to me. It's it's a more nuanced, more complex, more authentic picture of Thomas Jefferson. It doesn't, uh, discard him, but it says this has to be dealt with in any serious conversation about this great man.
2: Yes, I totally agree. I think it it is never an either, or it is always an and. And that and is so important to actually including all of the people that lived in early America, all of the people that have lived in this nation up until this point. If we only tell one part of the story, we're, we're really only giving a very tiny slice of that existence. And as historians or as lovers of history or as lifelong students, we should want to have the full picture.
0: We are getting close to the end of our conversation for this week. Uh, Before we do, though, Lindsay, I want to thank you again for being so generous with your time and coming on the Jefferson Hour. You're a real favorite with our listeners, I must tell you, if you don't know that already. And I, I also wanted to, you know, find out what you're up to now, uh, and maybe you could uh, tell listeners again if they would want to follow your work, where they can find it.
1: Plus, you mentioned uh, books, new books on filibuster. Do you have any recommendations? Speak now.
2: Absolutely. So let me start there, so I don't forget. There's a great book called Kill Switch by Adam Gentelson. He actually worked in the Senate for quite some time with Harry Reid. And uh, it's a really I mean, you wouldn't think a book about a filibuster would necessarily be super exciting. But but it is it is fantastic. And um, so highly recommend that. Uh, I see Clay recommends it, too. Um, I can be found <laughs> waving it around. Always good to have the, the actual physical evidence. Um, I can be found online. My website is Lindsay You can sign up for my newsletter there, which is called Imperfect Union. I write an essay every month and it includes Links to all the other pieces that I've written, like the governing articles we've mentioned, podcasts, all sorts of things. And um, I am on almost all of the social media channels, but Twitter is my favorite. so I can be found there at LM Travinsky.
0: yeah you had a you had a great uh, imperfect union about uh, Washington's farewell address on its uh, it, back in September, I think it was an anniversary of him giving that. a great that's a great read.
2: Thank you. Yeah, and it, that was a great example of, you know, I've been working with this document for years and years and years and years. And then I was doing a presentation on it for a bunch of teachers. And the conversation sparked some new ideas for me. So we never stop learning, ideally. And talking to people that work with these documents in the classroom can be such an illuminating process, even for those of us who study it for our jobs.
0: Well, again, thanks for coming on this week. I hope we can talk to you again soon.
2: Absolutely. Always happy to be back.
1: Lindsay, the the issue of cloture and the filibuster is 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 a is a gigantic one in American life, and for everyone who listens to the Jefferson Hour, who feels despair over the paralysis, uh, look into the the issue of the filibuster, its historic origins, uh, its use and misuse, uh, the misconception that it's somehow constitutional in its basis, um, and what would happen if we eliminated it, and how how much it has already been manipulated? It's routinely manipulated by the United States Senate, and so the the sense that somehow if we did this, the whole edifice of the American Constitution would collapse is is just nonsense. And so, the best way to to get out from under our own ignorance is to read, and we can start with Kill Switch. So, thanks to everyone. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
3: The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program,
0: Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.